Well, for many of us, the Christmas hymns have a special place in our hearts, and it's such a joy to be able to sing them together. And indeed, the Christmas season is a wonderful time of celebration, and for good reason. The story of Jesus' birth has captivated and inspired untold numbers of people for centuries throughout the world. I think the story of his birth has permeated our culture like no other. We hear the story in unexpected ways and in unexpected places. My wife was in Ikea a little earlier this month, and as she was going through the store, one of the songs she heard playing in the store was, God rest ye merry gentlemen. Think about that. Think of some of the lyrics of that song. In that song we sing, God rest ye merry gentlemen. Let nothing you dismay. Remember Christ our Savior was born on Christmas Day to save us all from Satan's power when we were gone astray. That song, those words playing in the store as the store was filled with shoppers. I saw a little clip from a, a talk show uh, that had Jimmy Fallon and um, Kelly Clarkson and Meghan Markle all talking about some of their favorite songs and talking about Christmas. And they were asking each other, what's your favorite song? And one of them said, Silent Night. And so I said, well, let's just sing that together. And so right there on the spot, they get a guitar without having planned, without having rehearsed. They sang the first verse of Silent Night together perfectly uh, in harmony. And it was wonderful and it was beautiful there on on uh, TV for all to see, talking about this holy infant so tender and mild. I've had an opportunity to talk to a couple different people this week who have um, seen Handel's Messiah performed at Seattle's Benaroya Hall. Of course, this was originally composed in 1741 and, and first performed in 1742, but eventually became one of the best known and most frequently performed choral works in Western music. If you're familiar with Handel's Messiah, it's just scripture. It's scripture being proclaimed and all these people filling Benaroyal Hall to hear this time and again, year in and year out in Seattle and around the world. My sister was telling me about it last night and how during the Hallelujah Chorus, everyone stands together and sings. Even in Disneyland, at the beginning of the month of December, there is a production that's put on in the park a Christmas production where they bring in a full choir singing Christmas Christian hymns with readings of Scripture from the Gospel of Luke right there with a, a huge crowd listening and hearing. We hear the story of Jesus' birth from unexpected and even surprising places. We are currently doing a sermon series going through the Gospel of Luke, and we've entitled this sermon series the surprising kingdom. Jesus came in a surprising way, and he continues to surprise people even today. As Christians, we celebrate his birth because of who he is, why he came, and how he accomplished what he came to do. And our sermon series going through the Gospel of Luke helps us to understand all of this. As we study Luke's Gospel, we want to look to Jesus and see him for who he is. We want to go to him to receive what we need. We want to trust him to fulfill his promises to us. And we want to follow him, applying his teaching to our lives and obeying his commands. A couple weeks ago, 
we went through the birth narrative, the beginning of Luke chapter 2. And last week, we read about what happened with Jesus a few weeks after he was born, when Mary and Joseph took him to the temple. And our sermon text this morning is Luke chapter 2, verses 39 through 52. And our passage this morning is the bridge between Jesus' infancy and adulthood. These verses give us the first recorded words of Jesus and the only insight we have into his childhood. I'm going to read Luke chapter 2, verse 39 through verse 52. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Our passage begins with a return to Nazareth after Mary and Joseph performed all that the law of the Lord required. And then we jump ahead with one sentence to when Jesus was 12 years old. What do we know about that time between when he was an infant and when he was 12? Well, we read that he grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom and God's favor was upon him. Then when he was 12, we read that Joseph and Mary made their annual trip to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. The Passover meal was instituted by the Lord right before he delivered his people out of slavery and bondage in Egypt under Pharaoh, which we read about in Exodus chapter 12. The Lord commanded Pharaoh to release his people, but the Lord hardened his heart and Pharaoh refused to do so. So the Lord brought judgment on Pharaoh and executed judgment against all the gods of Egypt through a series of devastating plagues. And the tenth and the final plague was the death of the firstborn in every household in Egypt. But the Lord distinguished between his people Israel and the Egyptians. He commanded the people of Israel to sacrifice a lamb and then they were to take the blood from the lamb and to paint it onto the doorposts of their house. 
And we read in Exodus 12, 13, the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. And so those who took refuge under the blood of the lamb were saved from God's judgment. He passed over them, bringing judgment on their enemies, but saving them. And the people of Israel were commanded to observe the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread annually as a reminder of God's redemption. We've already seen that Joseph and Mary sought to observe the law of the Lord and obey his commands. And so it is no surprise that they made the trip to Jerusalem every year to celebrate the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The journey from Nazareth to Jerusalem was about 80 miles. And so it would take them about three or four days. You can imagine getting the whole family together, packing all the supplies, getting the animals they needed, and making this long trip to Jerusalem. No easy task. They would travel in a large group of family, friends, neighbors, acquaintances. They would do this for safety. And it was also a familial event. And so they would travel together, making this journey to Jerusalem. And this would have been an exciting time for Jesus and his family. The city of Jerusalem would be full of activity. Kent Hughes provides a wonderful description of what the 12-year-old Jesus would have experienced going to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. I want to read this description that he provides. Kent Hughes writes, When the jostling merry throng passed through the gates of the city, a grand sight met Jesus' 12-year-old eyes. Some 200,000 pilgrims packed out the walled city. Every available space was rented, and in lieu of rent, cheerful hosts were given the hides of sheep sacrificed by their guests. Merchants who had come in advance lined the streets displaying their wares, and beggars stationed themselves strategically by the city's ancient gates. The most intense activity was at the sheep stalls, where pilgrims bartered for sheep and goats to sacrifice at the temple. When the sun rose on Passover, intense activity filled the encampments, the homes, and especially the temple. A full contingent of priests attended the temple. Their first task of the day was to take the leaven that had been gathered by candlelight from each home and ceremonially burn it. Next, they prepared for the ritual slaughtering of the Passover lambs. By midday, all work stopped, and a holy air of anticipation rested over Jerusalem. At about three o'clock, the sacrifice began. We may well surmise that Joseph and his relatives, in preparation for Jesus' manhood, took pre-adolescent Jesus into the temple with them so he could observe the sacrifice. If so, as the gates of the temple court closed behind the vast group of worshipers, he heard a ram's horn sound and saw Joseph, in concert with hundreds of other worshipers, slaughter his family's lamb. The priests, standing in two long rows, caught the blood in gold and basin basins, then doused it against the base of the altar. Levites sang the Hallel Psalms above the din as Jesus' father dressed his lamb, and before leaving, slung the animal, wrapped in its own skin, over his shoulder, and departed with his young son in tow. At home, the lamb was roasted on a pomegranate spit and eaten after sundown, sundown by the whole family. In the flickering amber light of a candle-decked room, the meal was joyfully consumed according to Passover liturgy with interspersed hand-washings, prayers, and Hallel psalms. At the conclusion, the son asked the father the ceremonial question, 
Why is this night different from all other nights? And his father responded with a moving review of Israel's deliverance from Egypt. The night ended late with many people returning to the streets for more celebration. Others went back to the Temple Mount to await the opening of the doors at midnight for further worship and prayer. When young Jesus finally went to sleep, the dazzling images of Passover undoubtedly danced in his awakening human soul. And that was not all. Jesus' devout family stayed for a whole week in Jerusalem. And so their 12-year-old had the run of the old city, especially the temple. Jesus spent those seven days in holy delight. Every right, right spoke volumes to his soul. His nimble mind connected scripture with scripture and then with life. But while the celebration of the fat Passover feast of and unleavened bread provide the back, backdrop for our passage, it is not what gets the most attention. What Luke spends more time on is what happened after Joseph and Mary began their return trip home. Because the group was so large, they were able to go a whole day without realizing Jesus was not with them. But at the end of the day, they began to look for him. They began to ask around. And after a while, they realized he had not made that trip with them. And so they quickly made a U-turn and went back to Jerusalem. And after three days, they found Jesus. They counted days inclusively, so that included the day that they traveled away from the city, the day they traveled back, and on the third day is when they found him in the temple. They found Jesus in the temple, which was the center of worship for the Jewish people. And he was not panicked. He was not stressed out. He was not crying, where are my parents? No, he was in his element. He was fully engaged in what was taking place there in the temple talking with the teachers, asking them insightful questions, engaging with their answers. He was loving this. He was enjoying this. And after they found Jesus in the temple, Luke records a brief but revealing conversation between Jesus and Mary, where we find the first recorded words of Jesus, which we will get to more in a moment. Jesus then returned to Nazareth with his parents and was submissive to them. And we also read that Mary treasured up all these things in her heart. And this is the second time we see this phrase used of Mary. The first time was when the shepherds visited Mary and Joseph shortly after the birth of Jesus. The shepherds recounted to Mary and Joseph what had been told them by the angel. In Luke 2.19, we read, But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. Mary treasured up these events, pondered them, remembered them, reflected them. Perhaps Luke had interviewed her and asked her about all these things that she had treasured up, that she had reflected on, that she had remembered, that had stood out to her as she watched Jesus grow. Luke then provides another one-sentence summary describing Jesus' life from when he was 12 until he appeared again as an adult. Using very similar language to verse 40, he said, Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. What's interesting here is that Luke also used language that was used back to describe Samuel in 1 Samuel chapter 1, verses 2 through 6, which says, Now the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor 
with the Lord and also with man. Well, there are a few things we learn from this passage. In these verses, we learn about who Jesus is, why he came, and what he possesses. First, we learn about who Jesus is. And one of the things that stands out in our passage is the humanity of Jesus. He is described in our passage as a child, and as a child, he went through the process of growing up. He grew taller, stronger, and increased in wisdom and understanding. He had a community of family and friends. He went on trips. He asked questions and had his own set of childhood experiences and memories. He had parents he followed around, although clearly not as closely as they would have liked. When his parents realized he wasn't with their group on the return trip, they panicked as any parents would. They were in great distress. Some of us can just feel that anxiety in our bodies, imagining this scenario, losing a child. Some of these details remind us that Jesus experienced life in a human body with a human nature. In his humanity, he was the son of Joseph and Mary. But he was not only the son of Joseph and Mary. When Mary told him that they had been searching for him in great distress, he replied, Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Jesus referred to the temple in Jerusalem as his father's house. He was referring to the Lord, Yahweh, the one true living God, as my father. There are a handful of places in the Old Testament where God is referred to as a father, but mostly he's referred to as a father in terms of his relationship with the people of Israel as a whole. For example, in Isaiah chapter 63, verses 15 and 16, we read, Look down from heaven and see, from your lofty throne, holy and glorious, where are your zeal and your might? Your tenderness and compassion are withheld from us, but you are our father. Though Abraham does not know us or Israel acknowledge us, you, Lord, are our father, our redeemer. From of old is your name. He is here described as the father of the people of Israel. And there are a few places where God is described in terms of a father to a particular individual, a descendant of King David who rules and saves his people. We see this in Psalm chapter 2, verse 7, where we read, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. This descendant of David, this king is described as the Lord's son. And so we see these examples where the Lord is described in terms of being a father to the whole people of Israel. And he's described in terms of a father as this particular individual, this descendant of David. But we don't really see examples of an individual person referring to God as my father. When Jesus referred to the temple as my father's house, he was speaking of his relationship with God in a unique way. He understood that he had a unique relationship with the Father. Of course, Mary had already been told this. 
In Luke chapter 1, verses 30 through 33, we read, But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. And he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. And then in Luke 1.35, the angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Jesus is the unique Son of God. And at the age of 12, he demonstrated that he knew he was the Son of God. And here in the first two chapters of Luke's gospel, our understanding of Jesus takes shape. On the one hand, he was the son of Joseph and Mary, who grew up in a way that was similar to other boys and girls. On the other hand, he was the son of God, who was utterly distinct from anyone else. And one of the ways we talk about this is with the term incarnation. But what do we mean when we talk about the incarnation? Theologian Stephen Wellham writes, Incarnation is the term that refers to the supernatural act of the triune God, whereby the eternal divine Son from the Father, by the agency of the Spirit, took into union with himself a complete human nature apart from sin. As a result, the Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, now and forevermore, exists as one person in two natures, our only Lord and Savior. Jesus, then, is the divine Son. And as the Son, he is not a created being. Instead, he is the eternal Son through whom all things were created and are now sustained. Who is Jesus? There is nothing more important than knowing who Jesus is. Do you know Jesus? Do you know him? Do you know who he is? Jesus is the eternal son of God through whom and for whom all things were made. And he came to earth taking on a human nature, born of the Virgin Mary, who grew up, we see, had experiences as a child, even a 12-year-old son. Brothers and sisters, I hope we never cease to be amazed by this glorious truth that has inspired songs, poems, plays, and beautiful works of art. I hope we never cease to be amazed by this glorious truth that has compelled billions of people throughout the centuries and around the world to worship Jesus as Lord. I hope we never cease to be amazed by the fact that the eternal Son of God took on flesh and walked among us. I hope we never cease to be amazed by this story of Jesus in the temple as a 12-year-old boy. 
Next, we learn about why he came. When Mary and Joseph found Jesus at the temple in Jerusalem, he said, I must be in my father's house. Did you notice his use of the word must? He didn't say, I want to be in my father's house. He didn't say, I enjoy being in my father's house. He didn't say, when can we come back to my father's house? He said, I must be in my father's house. That word must is an important word. Why did he say he must be in his father's house? Well, his use of the word must pointed to the necessity that he carry out the will of his father. Jesus used this word must numerous times in Luke's gospel in reference to carrying out God's plan. We're going to see this several times throughout our sermon series. In Luke chapter 4, verse 43, after he began his public ministry, he said, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. It was necessary for Jesus to go around preaching the good news of the kingdom so that many would hear this good news. In chapter 9, verse 22, he said, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. It was necessary for him to suffer and die in his role as the Savior of the world. In Luke chapter 19, Jesus was passing through Jericho, and he had a crowd of people following along him on the path. And at one point, there was a man named Zacchaeus who was a tax collector who wanted to get a glimpse of Jesus, but he was a short little guy. And so he went ahead on the road that Jesus was walking and climbed up in a tree so he could get a glimpse of Jesus as Jesus walked by. But Jesus did not walk by. He stopped, and he looked up. At Zacchaeus, and he said, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. Zacchaeus, who was not well liked by his fellow Jews because of his occupation as a tax collector for the Roman government, came down and responded to this invitation by saying, Look, Lord, Today I give away half of my possessions, and if I have defrauded anyone, I will pay them back four times the amount. And in verses 9 and 10, Jesus said, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. It was necessary for Jesus to do the will of his Father. Doing the will of his Father meant preaching and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. It meant pursuing, seeking, saving the lost. It required him to suffer and die for the sins of his people. In our passage, Jesus said, I must be in my father's house, giving a glimpse into why Jesus came. He came to do the will of his Father. 
Jesus is God's son who took on a human nature to do God's will. Finally, we learn about what he possesses. We've already seen how Luke bookends this event in Jesus' life with statements that he was gaining wisdom and enjoying God's favor. And his wisdom was on display when he was in the temple. He was engaging with the teachers, asking insightful questions, demonstrating that he too had knowledge of these things, that he had knowledge of God and the scriptures. He was engaging them in this robust theological conversation. He was not only asking good, insightful questions, but he too was providing answers that impressed and astonished and that amazed everyone who watched. Can you imagine this sight? Can you imagine seeing this 12-year-old boy engaging with these teachers of the law, asking them questions, giving answers, not merely repeating things he had memorized, but demonstrating a personal, intimate knowledge of these things. He amazed everyone who saw him with his wisdom, with his insight. And this was only the beginning. This was just a foretaste of what was coming. When Jesus began his public ministry, he taught in a way that was profound and authoritative. People were amazed and enthralled with his teaching. He captivated his audience with the Sermon on the Mount. He used penetrating parables that revealed truth in a memorable and convicting way. He gave brilliant answers to questions that were meant to trap him and make him look bad. He taught about God, the kingdom of God, and how to live as a citizen of the kingdom of God. He not only revealed truth, but brought the truth of God to bear on people's lives. Consider this. Every teacher, even the best most wise, most knowledgeable teachers will at times say something erroneous, will at times say something that they regret, that they wish they could take back, that they wish they could say in a different way. If every teacher at the end of their life was to able to look back on their body of work, was handed everything that they said or had written and to review it, there would be times when they reviewed this and went, oof, probably shouldn't have said that. I wish I would have said that differently. That could have gone better. With one exception. And that was Jesus. Jesus taught truth with no mixture of error. There's nothing he could have said better. There's nothing he looked back on and said, oh, I should have said it that way. Everything he taught was perfect truth. Everything he re revealed was perfect wisdom. Jesus possesses perfect wisdom. He taught truth without error. Friends, Jesus is the divine Son of God who took on human nature, carrying out the will of his Father with God's wisdom and favor. Brothers and sisters, there are a few ways I hope we apply this text to our own lives. First, 
Prioritize your relationship with God. Throughout his ministry, Jesus referred to God as his father. And we see him give priority to his relationship with his father in heaven. Taking time to pray to the father. Do the will of the father. Point people to his father. Jesus was the son of Joseph and Mary. And as their son, he was submissive to them. Yet, we see that his relationship with God, his father, was primary. There was no relationship more important to him than his relationship with the father. In John 1, we learn that Jesus gives the right to become children of God to everyone who receives him and believes in his name. The wonderful news for us is that in Jesus, we too know God intimately and personally as our loving heavenly father. This is the good news. This is the gospel that Christ proclaimed. Friend, if you're not a Christian, this is the good news we proclaim to you. See, God is our creator. He is the one who created all things. He created the heavens and the earth and all that is in them, and therefore he has creator rights. He is the one who has authority over all things, over everyone and everything. And therefore, we are all accountable to him. And we are made in his image. God created man, male and female, in his image for a special relationship whereby we are to enjoy him, to obey him, to glorify him, loving him more than anyone or anything else in the world. And yet the sad reality is that we've all turned our backs on this wonderful, relation, wonderful relationship for which we were created. We've all rejected God's purpose for our lives and his rule over our lives. We've all sinned against God. We're all deserving of judgment. Yet God, who is rich in mercy, has provided a way for us to be forgiven of our sins and rebellion against him, to be reconciled to him, to know him personally and intimately as our loving Heavenly Father. And he did so by sending Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, into the world as the Savior of the world. Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary without sin, and he lived a life without sin. But he went to the cross to die as though he were the worst of sinners. He did so as a substitute to take the punishment for the sins of his people in their place. Jesus died on the cross, absorbing the wrath of God in the place of God's people. Jesus died and was buried, but on the third day he rose from the grave. He bodily rose from the grave, appearing to hundreds of people over the course of hundreds or 40 days, proving that he is alive, that he conquered death, he was vindicated. God demonstrated that he accepted Christ's sacrifice on our behalf by raising him from the dead. And after 40 days, he ascended into heaven where he is now seated at the right hand of the Father. And he will come again. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. 
And our only hope on the day of judgment is in Jesus Christ. Our only hope for forgiveness, to receive eternal life, to be welcomed into God's kingdom for all eternity is in Jesus. If you're not a Christian, I urge you to believe in Jesus and be saved. When Jesus began his public ministry, he said, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Repent, believe, be saved. For those of us who have believed in Christ, we are God's children. And as God's children, we prioritize our relationship with our Father as Jesus modeled for us. During the holiday season, we oftentimes have uh, the opportunity to spend time with family. And that is a good thing. For some of this, it's, it's a wonderful time to reconnect with family. For some of us, it's a painful time because of broken relationships or relationships that are strained, relationships with family that are not where we want them to be. But ideally, we spend time with family whom we love. And we desire to have loving and peaceful relationships with our family members. And that is a good thing we should pursue and pray for. At the same time, if you are a Christian, your primary relationship is with God the Father in Jesus Christ. Jesus taught that our love and loyalty to him must exceed our love and loyalty to anyone else. A little later in Luke's gospel, Jesus taught, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, this is a somewhat shocking thing to hear Jesus say. What did he mean by this? We must hate our, our father and mother, wife, children, brothers and sisters, even our own life to be his disciple? He was impressing on us that you must love your family less than you love Christ. Your love for the Lord must be greater than your love for anyone or anything else. As a child of God, your primary relationship is your relationship with the Father. And all of our other loves and loyalties do not compare with Him as He is our ultimate priority. Brothers and sisters, prioritize your relationship with God. Seek Him. Enjoy friendship with Him. Put Him first. That is your primary relationship. Next, seek wisdom in Jesus. Being a follower or disciple of Jesus means we learn to obey all that he has commanded, trusting that his commands are good and good for us. We seek to live our lives his way, according to his teaching, values, and commands. And we seek this in his word, in the gospels, but not only the gospels. Because all of scripture is his word. And so we seek to conform ourselves to his word. Wisdom is found in Jesus. And as his followers, our understanding of the world, our thoughts, our attitudes, our words, our deeds are meant to be shaped 
by his word. We are meant to be continually applying his wisdom to our lives. In Matthew 7, 24 through 27, Jesus said, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell. And great was the fall of it. Seek wisdom in Jesus. Apply his words to your life. That is how we walk in wisdom. We find wisdom in Jesus We apply his wisdom to our own lives as he commands us to do. Finally, value a submissive inner spirit. Jesus understood the temple to be his father's house. He understood his unique relationship to the father. Moreover, everyone was amazed with his understanding and answers as he engaged with the teachers of the law. You can imagine how this might go to the head of a typical 12-year-old or a teenager. Everyone's impressed with me. I'm the real deal. But what do we read about Jesus? In spite of all these things, Jesus was submissive to his parents. Being submissive is not a bad thing. While being submissive may be viewed negatively in our culture, it is a beautiful thing in the eyes of of the Lord. Kent Hughes writes, an obedient, submissive inner spirit is a key to experiencing proper spiritual growth and comes from knowing who we are. Jesus understood that he was the son of God and that God was his father. And that awareness produced profound submission to God and man. In our case, our union with Christ makes God our father too. Just as the Apostle John exclaimed, Beloved, we are God's children now. The awareness of being a child makes us want to obey him and empowers us to submit ourselves to others for his glory. Being submissive to others in the way God commands is an important way we grow in Christ-likeness. In his humanity, Jesus was submissive to his parents and ultimately to his father. And where did this take him? Philippians chapter 2, verse 8, we read, In being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Oh, this is what Jesus has done for us. May we know Jesus. May we love him more than anyone or anything in the world. May we seek his wisdom, walking in his ways, following his example. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for your word, what you make known to us in your word. We thank you and praise you for Jesus. 
through whom we know you as our loving Heavenly Father. And we pray that we will be people who prioritize our relationship with you, who seek you first, who draw near to you, who sit at your feet. We pray, Lord, that we will apply your word to our own lives, seeking wisdom in Jesus, following his example, being submissive and obedient, which he did so for our sake. May we know Jesus. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.